Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against your sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have respected we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Jeremy Mann. Um, I'm not actually on ministry staff here at Calvary, but my wife and I have been coming here for six years. And for the last two years, I've been working in the building. So I help lead a little elementary school that rents space from Calvary. It's called the Field School. And we have a special mission and burden to serve children on the west side of Chicago who in many cases don't have access to great schooling options. So it's great to be here. As was mentioned, this is the first Sunday that we're back without the kids. So I think we're due for a nice long sermon. <laughs> Just so long, kind of make up for last time. Um, I wish I was kidding, but this is kind of intense passage and there's a lot in it. Um, if you get weary, there's veggie straws in the children's area. Um, you might want to do some of those like air, I was on an airplane, there were some like special airplane stretches. Um, I thought those are like long sermon stretches too, not too different. Honestly, preparing for this sermon gave me renewed thankfulness to be at a church where we preach through an entire book of the Bible. Um, the African church father, Augustine, has this great quote where he says, if you believe what you like in Scripture and reject what you don't like, it's not God you trust, but your intuition. So before we dig in, let's pray together. 
Dear Lord, we come before you needy. Lord, we know that we're in need of food every day, and yet, in some sense, Lord, we're even more in, in need of the sustenance of your word. Lord, help us be nourished right now. Help us to hear what we wouldn't be able to hear without your enlivening spirit. Lord, as Johnny prayed, we think of the tremendous variety of circumstances that a congregation this size finds itself in. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us individually, that you would provide what we need as our Father. And Lord, you would help us to have greater trust in you because of what you've given us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's a question. If you said, think about the earthly wrath of God, what would you imagine? One way to answer that is to say that the cross of Christ is the perfect icon of God's wrath, all of God's wrath brought on his son. But just imagine in someone's ordinary life, what does the wrath of God look like? One image that comes to my mind is Wiley Coyote, where it's like lightning bolt and he moves over, another lightning bolt, like lightning bolts all over. Frustration, kind of God is out to get me. These are pictures that we have of God's wrath. But in the first chapter of Romans, there's a phrase used to describe God's wrath, and it's not something like coming against. It's giving over, allowing. Three times it says God's wrath is his allowance people to reject him. His wrath is his allowance of them to distort the things he's designed. His wrath is his allowance of the creation of an idol. Sometimes God's wrath must be, according to this, allowing people to live the life they want to live. He's stepping back. He's removing barriers. It's wrath as ease. Our passage today shows that the converse can also be true. Pain as evidence of love. And as we've been following this sermon series through the book of Hebrews, we've seen the author addressing this group that's in a lot of pain. In 11:35 through 38, we read about Old Testament believers who were tortured, mocked, beaten, imprisoned, sawn in two, destitute, and homeless. At the beginning of this chapter, we hear about this marathon of faith, a difficult race, and the need to strip off not just sin, but anything that hinders. And then we're told to look on Jesus, who also suffered. What makes sense of that? What do we do when we see, consider him who suffered, that you might not grow weary? You're encountering all this pain and this hostility and this threat close to resisting to the point of shedding blood. And we know from earlier in Hebrews that some of the people that would have received this were already in prison. They had their property taken away. The word here, discipline, is instruction or training, the Greek word paideia. And it's actually fitting for a kind of athletic metaphor, working out 
becoming stronger. We don't see in this passage a strong sense of rebuke or correction as though this group did something wrong. There's a lot packed into this passage. So there's seven things we're going to look at, the characteristics of this training. First one is validating. So look on verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. God trains those he loves. And those he loves are legitimized as his children by his training of them. See in verse 8. Sometimes we can think and talk in a way that everyone is God's child. That's kind of true in some sense. But the Bible talks about everyone as being created by God. Everyone as being made in God's own image. Instead of having unique value in creation, we're also all neighbors of one another. And when Jesus talks in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see what a high standard it is to be someone's neighbor. But on earth, there's only adopted sons and daughters of God. And note here, it only uses the word sons. And that's kind of interesting because in 2 Corinthians 6.18, God calls believing women daughters. So he's not opposed to that language. Why use sons here exclusively? Every child disciplined is called a son because every child here mentioned is an heir. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 talks about being a son and an heir. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. And if a son, then an heir through God. In ancient cultures, only sons could inherit. You had to be a son to be an heir. Illegitimate children, even if they're sons, are also not heirs. So this passage is not dismissing women. If anything, it's elevating them to a kind of shockingly high level for the ancient culture context of the time. Everything in the house of God is yours. What is our inheritance? One commentator writes, our inheritance as the children of God includes at least this, the world and all that is in it, God himself as our final and ultimate portion and reward, new glorified bodies that can enjoy more fully and deeply God and his gifts with no hint of idolatry. We also learned that this training is universal. Look in verse 8, partway down. Discipline, comma, in which all have participated. God has no undisciplined children. And it's hard to understand, but earlier in Hebrews 5.8, it talks about how even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. The third characteristic, this training is familiar. Verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So here the writer's appealing to a kind of common experience of children in this sermon, we don't have time to dig into people that don't have fathers, but it's an important topic. One of the reasons we named our school the Field School is because Proverbs 23.10, and it issues this warning, do not encroach on the field of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. The main point, though, here is actually contrast, because unlike the discipline of human fathers, this training is faultless. Verse 10, 
They trained us as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. And there's an intentional ambiguity there in the phrasing, as seemed best to them, emphasizing both that it can be as seemed best in their limited wisdom, kind of the best that they could do, the most that they knew. Also, though, seemed best to them in the sense that sometimes adults discipline children out of their own interest and not for concern for the child. And this is important because the emphasis here of discontinuity with an earthly father doesn't really matter then. A good father, a bad father, indifferent we all have a longing for a father who sees us, who knows us, who intervenes at just the right time. And none of us have that father on earth. The best father in the world makes mistakes. And the longing we have there for the perfect father is not meant to be used as a kind of measuring stick to kind of show fathers that they didn't do as well as they could. That ultimate longing is to make us desire the perfect father, the real thing. Our perfect father is also perfecting us. Last part of verse 10. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. If you skip down to verse 14, you see that this link to holiness makes this training essential. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this list gives us a rich sense of the importance of God's training, but it leaves out maybe the most important dimension. All of those that I referenced have like maybe one verse that talks about them. But the last characteristic of the seven is God's training is severe. Verses three, four, six, and 11. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful. This severity can lead to drooping hands and weak knees. Before we dig into that a little bit more, though, I want to just kind of pause and point out how there's a balanced picture of what human suffering involves here and a unique place of agency in it. So you might think of different ways that we can think of or make sense of suffering, and there's two extremes. So on one extreme is this detachment from it and the world and our bodies that bring about that suffering. So in some cases, Eastern religion can say the material stuff of this world is an illusion or it's, it's insignificant. Listen to this quote from the Bhagavad Gita. When your intellect has cleared itself of delusions, you will become indifferent to the results of all action, present or future. It's one extreme. On the other extreme, I think is more common for us. And this is kind of Western secularism where the material world is the only thing that really exists and the ultimate explanation of everything. Listen to William Provine, a longtime historian of science at Cornell. He writes, humans are comprised of two things, only of heredity and environment, both of which are deterministic. There is simply no room for the traditional concepts of human free will. Probably a lot of us don't go around thinking that to such a strong extent, but we really are influenced by this idea that the kind of circumstantial conditions of the world in which we live are by far the most important in our experience. 
And so if we had the right job or a different house or our children got into the right college, we would be okay. Those are the problems that we need to fix. That's the kind of soundtrack of the world most of us live in. And our passage here acknowledges both sides. So the reality of the spiritual and the material, our souls and our bodies, and the way they're woven together. And this whole image of the race that we have to run talks about, in some cases, about genuine fatigue and genuine physical pain, but then also discouragement or becoming faint-hearted. And I think we've all probably had this experience. When I get really stressed, my stomach just starts to turn in knots. When I've seen studies about how chronic pain leads to serious depression. That's in view here. But in the midst of it, there's this maintenance of agency. And there's, I think, two levels of this. So there's some things that we have kind of immediate direct control over. So lifting up your hands is something you can do kind of regardless of how you feel. But then there's a second order of things where we have indirect influence over something in our environment that has some bearing on our ability to endure to the end. I read this in Make Straight Paths for Your Feet. Uh, so this weekend, my parents are visiting from Nashville, and often we will drive to Nashville. And if you've been in Tennessee, you know there's these rolling hills that are, in many cases, quite large. When you're on the freeway, you'll see these places where they just like cut into this giant kind of part of the earth in order to make a straight path or in order to make more level what would have been a steep climb and then descent. And I've, I've kind of always been interested. I used to live kind of in the Rocky Mountain West and you would just see like whole mountains that got moved so that this good road could kind of go through. Um, so I looked it up and uh, it's regulated by this, God bless this group, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. And that group, uh, depending on the area, the part of the country, and the speed limit, interestingly, sets the maximum grade you can have. So in Tennessee, the maximum grade you can have is 4%. All right? I don't want any of you building roads that are 5% pitch. It's not allowed. Sometimes, though, we do that in our life a little bit, where we, we think to ourselves, we need to just overcome a very difficult environment. And I think part of the point here is that sometimes what we do is we go to the environment itself. We straighten a path that would otherwise be crooked. Um, a spiritual lesson here. I was reminded of a time, so sometimes through my work at the school, I have to go to the village of Oak Park, uh, the village hall. And I've worked with one gentleman there a few times, and we've kind of built a relationship. And the first time, I was talking to him just about the mission of the school. And I mentioned that at the school right now, a quarter of the students come from families that have an out household income less than $20,000 a year. And we were talking a little bit about that. And he made a point that I thought was incredibly insightful. He said, oh, I didn't grow up in Oak Park, didn't used to live in Oak Park. He said, I used to think I had a pretty nice life and I had enough stuff. And then I moved to Oak Park. And he said, coming to Oak Park has changed my sense of what I need and what is kind of enough and what a comfortable house looks like. And I thought that was very perceptive, the way he was seeing how we're shaped by the things around us. And it reminded me of a, a sermon I listened to a little while ago where the pastor was talking about how 
sexual sin is very important in Scripture and in Jesus, but Jesus actually warns more against greed. And this pastor made the point about how sexual sin is a fairly black and white issue. You know if you're committing adultery. But greed is such a kind of subtle, slippery dimension. You can just sort of kind of tell yourself a story about that. And we are all, as people, in a particular experience, influenced by that. So I don't know for all of us what that means in our own environment, but it's worth reflecting on. What are the paths that are actually needlessly crooked and could, in some sense, be straightened? Let's go back to the severity of the training of God. It's painful. It makes us faint-hearted. And when I just personally really dwell on the imagery of verse 12, I feel really uncomfortable. First part starts, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. If you play sports long enough, you are going to be in a situation where you see someone get a dislocated limb, and it's just gross. <laughs> I've seen it a couple of times. Um, this is not an attractive representation of what it's like to be disciplined by God. As I was thinking about it, it almost, if it weren't in Scripture, it would almost feel kind of blasphemous or something. But it's honest. Picture of the vividness of what it's like to experience that, to be on the inside of that, comes from Dante's poem, Divine Comedy. The setting is Dante is going up to heaven and he's led by Virgil. And they get to this chasm that the path only can go through. It can't go around it. And in this chasm is fire. Here's what Dante says. Gripping my hands together, I leaned forward and staring down into the fire, I recalled what human bodies look like burned to death. Virgil said to me, my dear son, there will be pain here, but there is no death. If you spent a thousand years enduring the fire's raging furnace, it would not singe a single hair of yours. Okay, here's where it gets good. Once within the flame, I gladly would have cast my body into boiling glass to cool it against the merciless fury of the blast. But from the other side, to guide us, rose a hymn, and moving toward it, mindless of all else, we emerged at last. Woo! Boiling glass to cool you. That, that's, that sounds hot. There's a lot of biblical echoes in that passage, but I share it because it captures the intensity of suffering when we're in the midst of it. It's horrible. It also is describing what these Hebrews are feeling and the kind of terror of what might remain ahead of them. And as we talked about, this is not a rebuke of sin. This is 
the rejection and resistance they are facing from the enemies of God, that God is allowing them to be in the midst of, that God is in some way using for their good. Did you catch the very last part, though, the last stanza of that? In one image here, we see the severity of suffering connected to an aspect of how we endure it. Dante hears a hymn on the far side, and he focuses entirely on that until he gets through. Later in the poem, we learn that the singers of that hymn are the saints who have gone before Dante through this trial. And that's important in our passage here in Hebrews 2. Chapter 12 begins by summing up this great cloud of witnesses. We talked about them in chapter 11 that we heard about, the ones destitute, homeless. But then now it zooms in on the person and addresses them individually. But there's this interesting movement through the text that we have. So verse 4, it starts with a kind of external force, challenge. But then from 4 all the way to 12, there's this coaching around the kind of internal process, like how to make sense of that suffering. But then following from 12 to 14, there's these kind of external reactions and activities and kind of ordering. And then from 14 to the end, there's this sense of corporate and collective care. Strive for peace with everyone. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it many become defiled. That's been a critical theme in the whole book of Hebrews, that we are not running this ultramarathon by ourselves. We cannot endure this by ourselves. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, take care, brothers, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, no one in the group, no one you see, no one around you, no one in the pews behind you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is tricky, though. Because if you have counseled someone or you are in the midst of some fiery trial, advice and kind of principles can feel pretty flimsy at best and at worst can really do harm. We've, we've been in those settings. So what do we do? One of my favorite authors is this woman named Eleanor Stump. And she's like a world-renowned uh, scholar on Thomas Aquinas, but she also looks like a fairy godmother. She is, she's just a dear old woman. When she's got shoes on, she's probably like four foot 11. And she wrote this book called Wandering in Darkness, Narrative and the Problem of Suffering. And there's a part of, that summarizes the book and to me is really helpful for thinking about what to do in the midst of that pain for yourself or someone else. What does it take to redeem suffering? What looks perplexingly blank in the abstract has handholds for our thought when we think about the question in connection with a story. Suffering can be redeemed for the sufferer 
in personal relationship. Heartbreak can be woven into joy through the reciprocity of love. I think part of the reason that we're told to meditate on the example of this great cloud of witnesses is because we have seen what they've gone through. We know their own stories. These stories and the kind of iconic function and encouragement they can be for us, I think is some, one of the ways that we encourage one another by the sharing of those stories. So I want to tell you about a woman that, for me, is one of the voices on the other side of the fiery trial. She's now on the governing board of the field school. That's how I met her. Her name is Daisy. Daisy was born into pretty tough circumstances as a young girl, but like a lot of kids, she just had that insatiable curiosity. She just wanted to learn. She asked a lot of questions. When she was six, her mom passed away, and her dad was married to another woman. She came, he came to the funeral, and at the funeral, he said to her, you're going to be a whore, just like your aunts. He never saw her again. Right after this, Daisy moves in with her grandmother, who runs an apartment where you can buy anything or anyone. This was in the Henry Horner Projects, which is not far from the United Center uh, before they were torn down. If you know the book, There Are No Children Here, um, it's about the Henry Horner Projects. And Daisy, even at a young age, just knew she wasn't going to do this. So she was given the job of caring for the children who were younger than her in this house. And she created this system where she wanted to go to the library. All the kids wanted to go to the playground. So she would go digging for worms, and then she would sell the worms to people that were fishing in the Chicago parks. And she needed to get 15 cents, because with 15 cents, she could buy three Freezy Pops, one for each kid. And if they got a Freezy Pop, they don't mind going to the library. So she would get books and learn and kind of continue to grow. There was a church, Lutheran church, actually not far, that sent a bus to the Henry Horner Projects. And by getting on this bus and going to this church, Daisy learned about Jesus. Uh, she was beaten in this house. Eventually, she um, ran away from home at the age of 13. and was a ward of the state in the DCFS program. It's an interesting story. She actually ended up going to Loyola and in college moved back to a different house that her grandmother owned. Then her grandmother moved and all the utilities were turned off of the house. For, for one Chicago winter, Daisy, sophomore in college, no heat, no electricity. She's on her own. Eventually, Daisy gets married. She has two children of her own. She feels called to become a doctor. And she pleads with God, can I wait to go to medical school until after I've raised my kids, kind of through their early years? So when her youngest starts eighth grade, Daisy goes to medical school. What kind of doctor does she become? A pediatrician. And where does she work? She works um, at the Holman Square Clinic 
of Lawndale Christian Health Center, which is like a short walk from where the Henry Horner projects used to be. And listen to how Daisy describes her work. I think this is interesting. There are some hard days when I have DCFS on speed dial. If you are hurting a child, I am not the person you want to come face to face with because I know firsthand what can happen and what it's like. If they feel the need to do something to me, if I die, I know I will not leave this world until God says so. We do not walk in fear. Toward the end, you can actually uh, hear this talk that she gave once. She says this, I'm a living witness that if you bring your hurts and your scars, he can make something beautiful. He can give you beauty for those ashes. I talked to her um, before this to make sure she was comfortable with me telling her story. And she said, she wanted, to she wanted me to emphasize two things. All right, this is Daisy to you. The goodness of her father and the presence of his son. And in our passage, we see clear Christological orientation. At the beginning of the passage in verse 3 and in 14, we're supposed to consider him and our ultimate reward, the treasure for which we endure this, is to see the Lord. That's Jesus. But as I kind of dug into this a little bit more, I learned that the more kind of literal rendering of chastises, see that in verse 6, in the NASB, which is the kind of most kind of straight from the text translation, that word is scourge, the whipping that Jesus endures before the cross. I kind of looked into this a little bit more. Read this description of what crucifixion involves. As the strength of the muscles of the victim's lower limbs tired, the weight of his body had to be transferred to his wrists, his arms, and his shoulders. The victim's shoulders would be dislocated first, then the victim's elbows, then the victim's wrists. The result of these upper limb dislocations is that the victim's arms were as much as six to nine inches longer than normal. In Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from when he's on the cross, it also has this line. I am poured out like water, and all my joint bones are out of joint. It can be insensitive to approach someone in the midst of that suffering, but to hear Daisy describe what she's been through and where she is now, and just the utter absence of bitterness. Some of us are in the midst of the fiery trial, and it is agonizing. Some of us, though, in various ways, are on the other end of that, and we have a responsibility. We can sing and call people to see something that they cannot see now. But in some mysterious way, we'll make 
a beautiful story by the time it's finished being told. That's our charge to one another. Let's pray that we can do that by God's strength. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we do not have a high priest who does not understand our weakness, but one Lord who sympathizes with us, who pleads on our behalf, who stands in the throne room of heaven, fully God and fully man and fully comprehending what it's like to be in agony, to feel like it's not fair, to feel like there's no way this can be made right. Lord, help us to consider him. Give us your spirit to enliven us, to open our eyes to see him. Lord, help us as is right and as you lead to help us speak the words of life to one another, to sing on the far side of that trial of your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.